Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the robotics community in Australia. Today, I've got a very special guest, Tom Luffler. He's the CEO and co-founder, eventer at Holbot. Tom, welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Nikki. Great to be talking with you. You studied naval architecture and mechanical engineering before ultimately graduating with a first-class honours in industrial design. I like that first-class honours. Congratulations. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your journey. Okay, well, I grew up in Australia, as you can probably hear in my accent, although my mother was South African, so we, we share that in common. So I grew up in and around and on and under the ocean, like, like many Australians. I sailed as a kid. My mother was a sailor. She sailed across the Atlantic when she was 19, set off from, from Cape Town to sail to the West Indies and ended up being at sea for an extra eight weeks, presumed dead because they were sailing astral navigation and all those things. So we sort of grew up with that sense of adventure and, and all the rest. So um, yeah, my, my dad's a surgeon. And so I have always had this combination of creativity and adventure with sort of technical aptitude and was lucky enough to have a workshop and lots of tools and things to make stuff and understand how to put them together and repair them and, and so on. So yeah, love boat, love the ocean. Started out in design and it wasn't technical enough for me. So I started building a boat and as part of that was like, let's do the engineering of boats studied naval architecture and so on. And the person I was building that boat with, unfortunately, passed away. I got a lot of tools and equipment out of that, ran my own business for a while and, and, and went back to design and industrial design, which is the, the right blend of those two for me and absolutely loved it. And yes, did very well. And, you know, it was during industrial design that Holbot began as my major project there. So, yeah. That's a journey. Listen, in some sense, I feel we should have had your mom on the podcast as well, not to take away from your brilliance, but sailing across the ocean at 19. Oh, my goodness. I mean, she sounds like, I don't want to say like a kick-ass mother, but she is that, isn't she? Yeah, yes, she is. <laughs> and and unfortunately, she's not with us anymore either. But mum traveled all over the world and, and to Antarctica and all through the outback. She did the canning stock route three times. Not many people have done that. And she loved wild places and nature. And certainly, you know, I have her to thank for my passion for the environment and for caring about wild spaces and oceans and atmospheres and clouds and all those things she loved so much. And, you know, encouraging that, that fearlessness in the ocean and in, in nature, which is so important for diving and spearfishing and all those things that I do now, I have her to thank for it. So yes, it'd be great for her to join us. Sorry to hear that, but yes, kudos to her then in absentia. And, you know, we, I like to stop and pause and think about the people that have influenced us along the way and, you know, mentored us. And she certainly sounds as though she's been that to you. Absolutely. Holbot, the company that you, the CEO and co-founder of, you develop underwater drone platforms that can inspect, map, and interact with submerged structures. Tell us how the company started and exactly what you do. Awesome. So I'll tell you the second part of the question first, because it's probably important to be a bit more specific. So we do two things. We build autonomous underwater robots that 
inspect and clean vessel hulls so that they use less fuel, have lower emissions, don't transfer invasive species from place to place, and don't require toxic anti-fouling paint. So very much an ocean impact and a climate impact startup. And the way our robots work is very novel and pushes the envelope of what's possible with underwater robotics in general. And that technology stack forms a platform capable of doing a whole lot of other things. So we both deploy a service, clean holes as a service, saving operators fuel, and we build all the tech that enables that to happen. So the company started just after I finished university, was lucky enough to have the time whilst I was there to build a robot, but also do a long research thesis. And, you know, I was looking for something to do that was challenging and interesting, definitely wanted to do a robot, but wanted to do one that solved a big environmental and economic problem. And the more I researched about biofouling, I saw what a huge opportunity there was. And, you know, biofouling is is responsible for about 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. You know, stuff grows on boats, it makes the surface rougher, um, and the whole purpose of the engine on a boat is to push a large object through water, which is very dense, and if the surface is rough, you need more energy, you need more fuel, you use more emissions. And that was all clear even then, as well as the impacts of the paint and how toxic it was, how harmful it was, how it had been through many successive waves of regulation and the paints were getting less and less toxic, but also therefore less and less effective at preventing growth. And that fouled vessels transport invasive species from one location to another. That's extremely harmful to biodiversity, fisheries. Um, It impacts on uh, the reef. It impacts on inland waterways. and, And of course, in a warming world, it was a huge problem that needed to be solved. And it just seemed obvious and straightforward to me as an industrial designer and not a roboticist and certainly not a subsea roboticist, that why not just make a robot that cleaned the hull every day? What a great product. Whilst you're at the boat or not even there, goes in the water, it cleans the hull, You don't need any anti-fouling paint. You don't need to organize a diver. Maybe you don't need to lift the boat out of the water very often. And that would save people a huge amount of money. And so why not build that product and show it to people? And, you know, we showed it to lots of people and they were like, this is amazing. Like we we would love one of these. And it turns out it's very complicated to make that work. So very early on in the process, Carl heard about what I was doing. We have some mutual friends who are brothers and we got straight into building the robots together. And Carl has a diving background and an electrical engineering background. So it was a good fit for building, you know, small prototypes and getting them out there and working and filming them so that we could raise capital. And that feels like about 20 years ago, but (laughs) really it's about six years ago or six and a half years ago and in that time we've yeah we've built a team we've built six generations of robots and we've learned a lot about the tech stack that's required to make this work and just how complicated the problem we're tackling is and we're absolutely sure we're on a winner 
both in the hull maintenance side of things and just as a general purpose platform. And we're ready to deploy that in a range of different applications, but focused very much on hull cleaning in the first instance. You make me laugh at your observation. It feels like 20 years ago, I, when I had my company Exaptic, I resonate with that. It feels like you age incrementally with all the stress that's heaped on your plate. And I, I know that any small business operator listen in our audience would resonate with that. And, you know, I, my, I, I always look at small operators or small startups and things. And I always, my question is, are you looking after yourself? Are you looking after your mental health? And you know, taking rest when you need to. So I'm just going to have to ask you the question, are you doing that? It fluctuates. Um, certainly early on, we both had a bad habit of working late into the night and just, you know, in a sense, when you're building technology and you're actually on the tools and doing stuff, it's really fun and you can get absorbed and get in that flow state. But when you're running a company and, and you're having serious meetings that take really take it out of you and needing to be emotionally intelligent and, and on the ball, it's really important that you rest and that you have downtime and time away. But there's no getting around the fact that being a founder is exhausting and um, it's a long journey. And so, yeah, it's something to always be mindful of. I don't, I'm not sure I have the balance right, but it's, it's really, it's really fun. Like uh, we're very lucky to be able to do what we do and we're really proud of it. I think if you wake up in the morning and you can't get wait to get to work, that's always a good sign that you've found your purpose in life because then any day, you know, you don't really feel as though you're slogging because you're excited about it. But yeah, I do resonate with, you know, initially as a, as a founder, you can work till all sorts of odd hours and it, it actually doesn't serve or benefit anyone in the long run. And I think those sort of um, stints are, or sprints, if you want to call it, is just for urgent work. Otherwise, you really have to, you know, our, our discipline is one of my my mantras. If you talk to my sons, they go, if you ask me what's Nikki's it's discipline, and it's as much discipline at the end of the day to say, put this down. I mean, we can do the work, but actually tomorrow we need to pick it up again. And you do need to go and have a run or a walk or a dive or like whatever it is to give your brain a chance to regenerate as well. Yeah, it's definitely good advice. We have had one of our engineers remind us a number of times that we can't sprint all the time. And yeah, certainly it's something we've gotten pretty good at. We've been doing this a while. So we, we keep the balance in the mix for sure. That's good. So to any other startups listening to this, listen to Tom. He knows what he's talking about. Hit him up on LinkedIn if you've got any questions or you need to be reminded of him. I'm sure he'll love to tell you and give you advice on how to manage this. Now, talking about your staff, how many do you have and where do you find your staff? Yeah, at the moment, we're a team of 16. And so I guess we've the company changed a lot and we found people through a number of different means. Certainly, networking is everything. And often people find the company like that they we 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 have a an expression we use sometimes planting the seed so basically getting that little kernel of an idea that maybe Holbot would suit someone into their brain you know sometimes several years before they end up joining for example our commercial strategy lead i've 
known him for about six years and we met through founder friend. So I think there's, you know, probably three main avenues. One is existing network. Two is founder friend. And three would be recruiting. And so recruiting is split into two areas for us. One is internships. We run a lot of summer and winter internships when we have the capacity to do that. And uh, it's usually not whilst we're raising capital. It's when we, we've got capital and we, we're doing a lot of projects concurrently. We really love that culture of encouraging learning, encouraging teaching and really paying it forward and enabling people to get that first chance. It's really easy to just say, oh, we'll hire only people with X years of experience. It doesn't necessarily mean there'll be a good cultural fit or a good team fit or have a working style that fits with the rest of the organization. And But, but certainly in, in more senior roles, you need really good people who've done it before. And for the most part, they already have a role. Um, So, you know, founder networks are really important. Unfortunately, companies don't always go well and or roles change and people will recommend people to a business that they think suits them, suits their skill set. Or, you know, there's a number of other robotics companies in the community, as you're well aware of. And Sometimes we'll hire someone or we'll be hiring them and we'll just say, this is the person is a great fit for that company. And we've done that quite a bit. For example, with Reach Robotics, we've had, had, and that's because we we can, we can recognize the skill set, but maybe the cultural fits different or, you know, the, the specialities are different. So it's a, it's a mixed bag. Certainly we'd love to work with recruiters and so on. We we're often quite resource constrained. And so we need to pull other, other levers. And as I'm sure you know, Nikki, like reading through 250 resumes and then running interviews and then that whole process, it's quite a big load on the existing team and it doesn't always lead to a great result. So we do do that as well. But I think a lot of our most proficient team members have either come through the network or through internships. Well, listen, if it was me employing people, I think I would prefer that that way because if you're going through an employment agency and you end up with someone who's not a good fit, who looks and performed very well in the interview on paper, looked great, and then comes into your organisation and is a complete dud, like it's not that easy getting rid of people and and I don't mean riddle because, you, you know, like sometimes things just don't mesh and it, it's not a good fit for anyone and it just drags down the whole, mm. the whole environment. And I think it's getting increasingly tough, you know, when you onboard people that you, you know, I think that's why there's six months trial periods or probation periods is that you can go, well, hopefully in six months you go. And in some instances I've heard it's even longer that you can go, well, look, I don't think this is working for either one of us. Yeah, it's tough in startups because the company changes so fast as well. Not only because you're growing, but because sometimes you're heads down developing a new generation of robot, for example, and this has happened for us a number of times. And everyone's quiet and separate and at their desks with their headphones on, apart from big complex planning meetings. And then other times you're building and everyone's active and excited and and then you're testing and things are going wrong and the kind of management 
styles and the kind of working arrangements vary between those and different people shine in different contexts. And so you don't necessarily always know which areas of the business will require the most resourcing. And so people who can adapt and uh, people who either have a very deep speciality that's critical to the business or who have an ability to adapt with the right attitude are really important. But certainly as companies grow and change, the people that you need does change. And it's, it's very important that, you know, we, we put in every effort to, to bring as many people along on that journey as we can. But yeah, I'm super proud of our team, super proud of our culture and, you know, hats off to them. They make some of the most advanced and amazing underwater robotics technology right there in Sydney, you know, they're the smart people in the room. We just get to talk about it. <laughs> I love it. You and I are aligned on this. I get yeah. to talk to all the smart people, yourself included. So, yeah. you know, I, I love I picked up on one word and I think it's your attitude. You know, you can, mm. you, you can be a lot of things, but if you've got a bad attitude, it doesn't matter how smart you are. If your attitude's not good, then, ugh, well, you might as well go. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, culture and that. Things will change and it's, you know, you always intention between long-term planning that gives clarity and lets people make decisions and the fact that you're innovating. And so stuff inherently unknown to start with. And it's really important that you get that balance right. And it's, a, it's both a balance of leadership styles, but it's also about giving the right people the right kind of project. Because one, one person is bored if they know exactly where they're going and the other person is stressed if they don't know exactly where they're going. And even if you, that target kind of moves a little bit, the, the, the sense that they've known in advance is really important for, for them. And yet someone else, if you say this is where we're going, they might skip all the intermediate steps. Or if they're a really divergent thinker they might give you 26 other different locations you could go instead and it's 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 important just to to yeah make sure that that the leadership styles are you know attuned to those different personality types and just accept that there's always negotiation and trade-off between technical projects and product requirements and customer needs and um, resourcing constraints and so on there's no easy balance and someone's usually disappointed with whatever <laughs> decision you make <laughs> but as a whole if the attitude's right then as a group you know one of our values is you know we win together we try and spend as little time as possible identifying why something didn't work or why a decision was the wrong decision and instead look forward as a group. So no, 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 I told you so. And if you'd done it my way, it would have worked and stuff, but rather here we all are together. Let's move forward in these, these key directions. And then we all agree on it and we, and we execute. And that, that buy-in is essential. And it's really important in a small team doing something really out there with minimal resources. You know, if, if planning was the solution, then giant organizations would be the core of innovation. But it's agile, small teams that 
just get stuck into it without always knowing where they're going that seem to develop the the new ideas that that we so desperately need now different parts of the organization do different things with more or less innovation so that that's a factor but certainly setting that vision and communicating that that direction and and the way we're going to get there is is really important and so hiring people who are going to thrive in that environment um is really important to us almost as important if not more important than technical aptitude because you maintaining that that collective attitude is re- that's really positive is incredibly important it's an in- infectious and it becomes a, a superpower so yeah i'm listening to you going i wonder if your staff appreciate the value and the insights that you have here because this is well thought out and you in creating an environment for people to flourish and it's very tough in a founding situation to be over these things i mean probably your focus is product vision and company leadership and you i think you're excelling at it, at it you and Kyle and this has often stopped me from bringing in other people into my company when i had it is how do you coexist as leaders in the company do you have areas that you potentially don't agree on and what do you do and i'm i'm more interested in for advice for other startups that have co-founders because this is a tricky area to navigate. Yeah. I mean, okay, so the first thing to say is it's a it's a it's a long relationship and you get to know each other really well. <laughs> and so I would say, you know, for the most part we've been learning the same lessons at the same time. We see things the same way and so in general we're incredibly aligned. But part of your role is to spend your time discussing the areas where you're not aligned. You know, we don't sit there and have a three-hour meeting about stuff we agree on. We just get it, go and get it done. So we've gotten quite good at understanding how each other think and um, what areas we should focus on. And I think that's really important: is to learn as quickly as possible, not what you want to do or what. you don't want to let go of but actually what the business needs you to do as soon as possible and mentors can help a lot with that and the insights of other people you work with can help a lot with that and i would say that carl has a lot of strength in areas where i'm not as strong and vice versa and that's really important in a co-founding team and again i get i think it's similar to what we were talking about before nikki that it changes as the company changes and as you get more people and more projects and more things going on we've transitioned from both being across everything and then updating each other when we weren't to doing more separate areas and also things repeat over time so you get to learn how to do things faster and you you level up and i think we've gotten to a really really good place as the co-founding team but that journey is going to be as different as the business and the people involved. Yeah, did you ask me for advice? I'm not sure I, I Oh, no no, no. I I it's more it's more general <laughs> for people out there. It it sounds to me as though it's you know that say choosing your partner is 98% of like how successful you're going to be in life, your your life partner. So it sounds to me as choosing a co-founding partner is equally important because it's got huge implications on your life and you know unless you've both got a view of you going to maybe sell the business in 10 years time this is quite a long term relationship 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they also say you need to, you know, work at a relationship or work at a marriage or whatever. So it's not just sort of a, a, a you select and then you get on with it. It's yeah, static. Um, <laughs> it's a constant process, and it's a different relationship and a different company and a different thing you're doing over time. Um, and yeah, I think it is very important. I think the ability to negotiate and discuss honestly is really, really valuable. Take on feedback is really valuable. And yeah, to maintain, to maintain trust and to maintain a friendship in the context of spending such a large amount of time together under so much pressure is, is pretty important. And we've done that, I think, very well. And we have a lot of people in the company who we consider incredibly close personal friends and that you know that does add a, a pressure sometimes and can lead to complexity in those relationships but i think learning that skill of negotiating under you know with with a little more more passion and a little more realness is is really important and i think sets us up well for what we expect to be quite a rapid growth you know as we've now you know circled in on the right market and the right business model and have the right product. We expect to raise quite a lot of capital and hire quite a lot of people and it'll all change again, yeah. but it, but we've, we've, we've got a solid foundation. Yeah. Congratulations. I, I like to hear that. And I, I'm wishing you obviously continued success in that. Now tell, take me through a typical day for you. What does it look like? I, I think it must be so varied that I was going to say a week, but I don't, let's just start with the day. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's probably two, I mean, obviously it's varied and yeah, there's no typical day, but maybe there's sort of two typical modes for, for me as the co-founder and CEO. So I do a significant amount of fundraising and external relationship management. So there's a clear difference between when we're fundraising and when we're not. When we're fundraising, which is more of the time than we'd like, to be honest, my calendar can be filled with calls from super early Sydney time to talk to people in the US, still really late to talk to people in Europe, as well as a whole range of demos and walkthroughs through the middle of the day. And then quite a lot of meetings with, with Kyle and our commercial strategy lead about various documents we're turning around and investor due diligence communications and so on. And in parallel to that, there are insights about our business model and customer relations because we're, of course, executing in parallel to, to raising capital. But certainly we're applying the resources that we have in the room very efficiently and in a targeted way to achieve certain objectives that unlock that fundraising. And uh, fundraising involves a lot of relationships and a lot of shots on goal. And each one of them needs to be started as though it's the one that is the one, you know, the one that is gonna that is gonna go forward and you're gonna be yeah joined joined at the hip to these individuals and their capital and their shareholding and and sort of sharing this outcome together over the long term. So it requires yeah a lot of emotional energy and a lot of it's like dating, like dating 50 people at once. And then there's a different mode, which is we're not fundraising. And then that's often involved team building and plan formation and then executing on, on something. And I like to be pretty, I think like to spend that time reconnecting with the team that 
I might not have had the time to talk to. So sort of out, outside focus and then internal focus with customers and products continuous throughout, throughout both. But we usually have a longer time horizon on our planning after we've raised. We're thinking about what are we going to do for 12 months or two years rather than mostly the next three to six months. And what might, what, what might we do with all the possible things we might, might set up rather than what, what should we do or what must we do with what we have and the time and resources we have available. And that's sort of two different framing. I think things that I probably, um, a, a typical day, if, if when I mentioned fundraising quite a bit, if we're not fundraising, a typical day will involve customer meetings, meetings with the, the leads of various teams, meeting with mentors, um, uh, and yeah, a lot of planning, a lot of strategy communication, a lot of implementing new things for the company as it grows, systems, communicating vision to key people so that they can communicate it on to the, to the rest of the team, things like that. It's, it's a full-on load. Your biggest challenges to date, I know fundraising okay. is like it's, it's just ongoing and huge. Yep, yep. Park that one. We always hear <laughs> Park about that, that one. one. from hardware podcast. founders. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Raising money for hardware companies is hard. Yeah, yeah. Give us other challenges. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I guess um, product market fit and then product market model fit. So, you know, we've got a robot that cleans hulls and inspects hulls. Hulls are of many different shapes and sizes and purposes and owners and even the same type of vessel right like a, a yacht can be owned by a large group of people or privately owned or a passionate racing sailor or a charter operator or it's just changed hands or what have you and so market segmentation and understanding price points service delivery models and the number of customers required or the number of, of customers required in a particular location to make that business model make sense is something that we've spent an enormous amount of time working on and yet have been in some ways constrained by the complexity of our technology. You know, autonomous underwater robotics is hard at the best of times. When you add not just inspecting and mapping but also actually touching the environment changing things i.e cleaning interaction when you combine that with a dynamic environment the water's moving the boat's moving the robot's moving in all directions um, and then the fact that we need to respond to all those changes very rapidly so we're controlling 12 different actuators in a six degree of freedom robot that's in a dynamic environment with very little in the way of the perception and sensing capabilities available off the shelf that can get you even remotely close to that. There's a lot of business models that work on paper that require a level of technology attainment that we've proven we can do, but that we're unable to deploy with the capital we've had to date at a scale which makes them profitable. And so our challenge has been communicating that 
we've shown the market wants the product. We've shown that the technology we've developed is capable of unlocking that product. We've found business models and validated those business models in a number of different segments, any of which can be multi-hundred million dollar markets for us very quickly and total opportunities um, north of 150 billion USD in hull maintenance. So definitely something worth doing. And yet raising capital is very easy for companies which already have that revenue flowing in. And so we've tried to find the best business opportunity that uses the technology we have today with the least upfront investment to get the most return. And that requires planning on the technology attainment, the technology roadmap, the product roadmap, the go-to-market strategy, the, the customer segment, the capital raising, they're all kind of linked together. And yeah. so the challenge for us has been focus. <laughs> I think yeah. I mentioned before we started, just because uh, we've had strong inbound interest from vessels of every size, from small power boats up to the largest shipping conglomerates in the world, from individual owners through to fleet managers, through to operators of syndicates, conglomerates of marinas, and then things outside of poles and so on, does not mean we should chase the whoever's you know most excited. We need to stick to, to what the numbers tell us. And so we have identified through quite an exhaustive search of many different possibilities and actively deploying in those possibilities and many, many meetings with experts in those areas and customer discovery and so on, that the ideal launch market for us is fleets of passenger vessels, so ferries, and we are targeting ferry operators with full force at the moment. So essentially, we offer clean hulls as a service for operators of fleets of ferries, which reduces their fuel consumption by at least 10%, possibly up to 30%, depending on what their current baseline is. And we deploy that as a turnkey solution with the robots and the technology we already have today. And that underpins a very simple and straightforward business model for a huge customer segment with really big and immediate need. They have to decarbonize their fleet as fast as possible. And they also need to keep their existing assets on schedule and on time because it's essential public infrastructure. And we can solve that problem for them today. And proving that that works is, is easy. You know, we're already doing it. We already have really good results from our case studies. The customers really positive with the results, wants to deploy it on the rest of their fleet. But yeah, capital raising is always a trade-off between getting the capital just before you've, you've done all the things you're hoping to do, after which you won't need any more capital. So <laughs> yeah, it's your, it's, investors want to do it the other way around, that's at it. which point yeah. you just wouldn't raise the capital. You'd yeah. just get financing from the bank to make more robots. That's it. Yeah. Mm. It's a catch-22. So reflecting on your journey to date, have you got any insights of what you think you would have done differently? Has there been any like standout thought that you thought, oh, maybe that wasn't a great idea or that was excellent and I should have done more of that? 
Yeah, there's, they're, they're related. I mean, the, the first obvious one is, you know, capital raising. I think it has been, I, think, I hope it's changing and I think it is changing, but it was quite hard to raise for hardware, robotics hardware in Australia in 2017, 18, 19 and 20. <laughs> <laughs> and so the advice would be go to the US and raise from investors who do robotics regularly. I think that has changed. The flip side of that was we got an incubation period because we were able to iterate on our technology whilst we had a small agile team and make quite a lot of robots, quite a lot of mistakes and develop a lot of IP and build it in-house. And so we had the time to do it ourselves. We had the time to explore it ourselves and really understand, you know, with our pre-seed capital, we designed 10 robots and and then with our seed capital, we, you know, finished off that fleet and then deployed them on for over four and a half thousand recorded missions out on Sydney Harbour and many others in our test tank, which gives us an enormous amount of experience in deploying vision-guided underwater robotics. And I think if we'd raised a lot more money, we might have put a simpler product to market sooner and never quite got back around to really pushing the envelope. So I'm not sure I'd want to remove the second one by raising a lot more capital from pre-seed and seed funds under the sort of US terms, which are very hard to get in Australia. But I think it's, yeah, it it kind of, if I I had to give some advice, I would say, do something really hard and worth doing. It's a long journey and it's a big world. And there are a lot of other people working on similar problems at the same time. And so if it's kind of too near term and too readily available, you might get lucky, but it's probable that a lot of other people have seen that same opportunity. Whereas if you're going to spend so long, particularly in robotics, um, um, kind of two schools of thought here. One is break new ground in robotics itself and then productize that, you know, with a really key market. And the other is sort of the systems integration approach, which is like take what exists and adapt it and productize that. And the second approach gets revenue a lot quicker, but it's possible that the companies that have actually broken new ground will take longer to get going, but then stream past the systems integrators. And I think we had the opportunity to develop the entire robot ourselves many times as a small team and really own the full stack. And now that we're able to to raise larger amounts of capital, we can then deploy our already productized tech very rapidly, but we know we have a a significant and defensible advantage. So I guess it's a trade-off between, yeah, having enough time to, to work on it and also <laughs> having to go slowly because you don't have enough capital to go quickly. So, yeah, so your yeah. burn rate. So in terms yeah. of you and Carl, like a lot of startup companies, and this is always an interesting thing, is do you have an external strategic advisor or mentor? Yeah, we, we have lots of awesome mentors. Some are founder friends, some are our investors. We have quite a few angel investor mentors who spend a lot of their time 
visiting us and helping us with specific parts of the business. And then we also have been lucky enough to be accepted into a number of accelerators where there are high quality mentors who are at a stage of their life that they've later in their career or they've exited businesses and they've got the capacity to support early stage startup founders or a real passion for the ocean, for example, who generously give us a lot of their time. And it's absolutely essential. There's too many to name, but yes, we, we, we lean very heavily on our mentors. We haven't formally engaged any advisors for any kind of remunerated advisory boards and so on. We think that who you need advice from changes quite a lot over time, a bit of a theme there. And, you know, our, our business model and our segments and the problems we're facing change. And so we, we, we need to tap different mentors for advice at different times. But we are, we are seriously considering that. And there are a number of people waiting to hear back from us on that. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really important piece of the puzzle. And I don't think mentors get enough gratitude and enough profile for the support that they do. And it's absolutely essential and invaluable. Well, on that note, to all the supporters and mentors of Howlbot, here is a great big shout out. Thank you very much on behalf of Tom and Kyle and the rest of the team there. Please know that your support and your advice and your time are hugely, hugely appreciated. Now, um, wrapping up with two questions. Any advice that you can give a startup or a young company out there? Maybe one do and one don't. Yeah, do work on something valuable and and hard and don't chase the easy it's it's not a get rich quick scheme it's an incredibly hard and unglamorous marathon for very for many 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 years so it better be something that's still going to be interesting and novel to people in 10 years and not just the latest hype thing and don't wait too long to start putting yourself out there marketing and network takes really long time to build and a lot of early stage companies, particularly technical companies that feel the ick of self-promotion and they think they're above it. We certainly waited too long to tell people what we were doing and to, you know, apply for competitions and apply for events, join organizations that can help you get your message out there. Maybe as a second point to that, if you've chosen something hard enough and interesting enough, you shouldn't need to be as worried about other people copying you if you let people know too early because you'll probably find out, as we did, that it's 100 times harder than we thought it was. So we were, you know, we were maybe like, if we tell people, other companies will just quickly build this product. But actually, they looked at it and just went, that's not going to work. <laughs> we don't have enough... <laughs> capital and enough engineers to make that work so nice you can cute, do it. cute idea cute idea <laughs> and so yeah i guess they're related yeah do something really groundbreaking and start telling people about it early super so of course tom is talking about organizations that you can join to help you that would be robotics australia group he didn't say that but that's who he meant that's right and, of course so tom any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with yeah 
robotics is absolutely essential to solving the giant problems that we face as humanity. And we should all be really proud of that. Security, climate change, feeding the planet, uh, regenerating habitat, regenerating the ocean, making business more efficient so that and production more efficient in all areas. You know, a, a huge amount of our quality of life and standard of living is underpinned by robotics. And I think, you know, uh, we should be really, we should be making everyone in positions of power know that none of the problems that they're seeking to solve can be solved without robotics. AI is all the, it's massively hyped at the moment and everyone's very excited. Without a physical embodiment, it's going to run out of things to have an impact on very, very quickly. And that physical embodiment is robotic. And so it, it might not take off in, you might not get to 50 million users in one week, but you'll probably have a bigger impact over a decade than whatever got to all those users in a week, right? So it's a long road. Make sure, yeah, make sure that I would encourage robotic entrepreneurs to hold their head up high and to pick something that's not just difficult to do and interesting from a robotics perspective, but is meaningful to the world at large. And, you know, let's give tech an awesome name again <laughs> by doing something that actually matters and matters not just for, you know, generating wealth, but for someone other than yourself and for the planet as a whole. So let's get on with it. Thank you so much. Wise words. Thank you for your time today, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. If the audience wants to reach out to you, LinkedIn, the best place, or hold us no doubt got a contact us page. LinkedIn's great. Spend far too much time on LinkedIn. <laughs> You're into the marketing. It's fine. That's your job. <laughs> Yeah. If anyone has a LinkedIn AI that can make me appear like I'm on LinkedIn when I'm not on LinkedIn, let me know. Um, Wonderful. Listen, thank you. I've so enjoyed speaking with you again. I'm going to watch your journey with great interest. And of course, you know, if there's anything that we can do, you just need to reach out. Yeah. And thank you, Nikki. And look, Robotics Australia Group has been an awesome supporter of Holbot and an amazing organization that's raising the profile of robotics in Australia in exactly the way I was saying it needs to happen. So thank you for all the work that you do and excited to see what we can achieve together over the next couple of years. Thank you. To our audience, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. I hope you're well wherever you're on the world. Look after yourself and I look forward to your company again. Mm-hmm.